I'd like to introduce to you our two moderators. We have Dr. Charles Hayes, who is a professor of physics here at the University of Hawaii and the interim dean of the school or the College of Natural Sciences. We also have a professor of English and director of the NOAA writing program, Dr. Thomas Hilgers. And I'm going to hand over the program to them at this time. Please welcome our moderators. It is a pleasure to welcome you to the University of Hawaii to the debate that Dr. Tom Hilgers and myself will moderate. Just a comment about the University of Hawaii or the purpose of a university in general. The university is the proper place, the proper forum should be at a university where we discuss anything. And of course, tonight's topic, therefore, is an important topic and is one which is such that we should think critically about what is being presented. And that's one of the things that the University of Hawaii and Tom and myself have been involved in just recently, of promoting the university to be a place where ideas are thought of critically. As we do that, we think of the university as a place where since ideas come, some of them carry a lot of emotion with them. That, of course, will be true for tonight's debate. So with that in mind, we must be very careful and cautious how we respond as we think critically about what is being said, because there will be people that have very strong opinions that are much different than what may be said from one of the podiums. With that in mind, let's listen very cautiously. Let's think critically and let's become very intellectually involved with what's going on. Now, at the end of the formal debate, there will be a time for questions from the floor. With that in mind, uh, we will not have, with all the people here, time for everybody to ask questions, but there will be time for a few of you to ask questions, and we'll talk about that later with mics on the side for that at the end of the formal debate. As the program indicated, we will start off tonight with an opening statement by the theist, followed by an opening statement by the non-theist. There will then be rebuttals by each side, and then a moderated dialogue. And finally, we will have final statements of each side. At the end of that, we'll have a short break, and then we'll go to questions from the floor. With that in mind, I'll turn the floor over to Tom Hilders. Welcome, and uh, thank you for having me. I hope that if there's any fainting tonight, it's from the quality of the arguments and not from the heat. Uh, I am a little concerned that we are so crowded that if anybody does have to go out for air, and I know it's quite stuffy out there, that there may not be room to proceed. So if you see somebody get up, I'll really appreciate if you move to the side so they can get through. Okay, uh, Kaylee just tells me that they have opened seating on the outside balcony, so those of you who are finding it appropriately stuffy might want to wish that move, move there uh, already. Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. William Lane Craig, who will be arguing a theist position tonight. William Lane Craig is research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology in La Miranda, California. 
He completed his PhD in philosophy at the University of Birmingham, England, before earning a doctorate in theology from the Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich, where he was for two years a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Stiftung. Got that. Okay. That's impressive, isn't it? Uh, Prior to his appointment at Talbot, Bill spent seven years on the faculty of the Higher Institute of Philosophy of the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. He has authored some 30 books, including The Kalam Cosmological Argument, Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom, Theism, Atheism and the Big Bang Cosmology, and God, Time and Eternity. In addition, Bill has published nearly 100 articles in professional journals of philosophy and theology, including the Journal of Philosophy, American Philosophical Quarterly, Philosophical Studies, International Studies in the Philosophy of Science, Astrophysics and Space Sciences, and the British Journal for Philosophy of Science. Bill has joined us tonight here in Honolulu from Atlanta, where he lives with his wife, Jan, and they have two children, Charity and John. Bill, welcome. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Victor Stinger. He will be arguing the non-theist position. Victor J. Stinger has recently retired from a distinguished international career in physics at the University of Hawaii and is currently Emeritus Professor of Physics from the University of Hawaii as well as Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, where he now resides. Vic earned his Ph.D. in physics at UCLA and has held visiting positions on the faculties of the University of Heidelberg in Germany, Oxford in England, twice, and has been a visiting researcher at Rutherford Laboratory in England, the National Nuclear Physics Laboratory in Frascati in Italy, and the University of Florence in Italy. Vic's research career spanned the period of great progress in elementary particle physics, that ultimately led to the current standard model. He participated in experiments that helped establish the properties of strange particles, quarks, gluons, and neutrinos. He has also helped pioneer the emerging fields of very high energy gamma ray and neutrino astronomy. In his last project before retiring, Vic collaborated on the experiment in Japan which showed for the first time that the neutrino has mass. Vic has had a parallel career as an author of critically well-received popular-level books that interface between physics and cosmology and philosophy, religion, and pseudoscience. These books include Not by Design, Physics and Psychics, The Unconscious Quantum, Timeless Reality. His latest book, Has science found God the latest results in the search for the purpose in the universe is now available. Fitch Stinger was former president of Humanist Hawaii and was named Hawaii Humanist of the Year in 1992. Turn the program over to Tom, who will be uh, moderating the formal section of the debate. Briefly, you note on your program that we will have 20-minute formal statements by both Dr. Craig and then Dr. Stenger, followed by 12-minute rebuttals. After that, we will move into a brief moderated dialogue, which will essentially give our debaters an opportunity to ask questions of one another. 
That will be followed by a brief break and then opportunities for after final statements from both of our debaters, questions from you. So without further ado, I invite the opening statement from Dr. Craig. Aloha, good evening. My wife uh, Jan and I are just thrilled to have the opportunity to visit your beautiful islands. We've just spent a couple of days on Maui and we plan to visit the Big Island and Kauai as well. And I'm also very glad to have the opportunity to be debating Vic Stenger tonight, who's emerged as a very prominent spokesman for atheism. I'm sure that we're in for a good debate this evening. So, does God exist? In order to answer that question rationally, we need to address two further questions. First, what good reasons are there to think that God exists? And secondly, what good reasons are there to think that God does not exist? In his most recent book, Dr. Stenger claims that he can prove to a high degree of certainty that a personal God does not exist. We'll see if he can make good on that claim in tonight's debate. I think that if we're honest, we should both admit right up front that neither of us can prove his case with that kind of certainty. The very fact that we're having this debate tonight shows that this is a question on which intelligent people can disagree. People don't have debates on questions like, does Akebono exist? Or uh, does Santa Claus exist? Because there are clear and compelling answers to those questions. But what that means is that your task is all the more difficult tonight. You're going to hear evidence both for and against the existence of God. Your job is to weigh the evidence, to see which way the scales tip. That requires a thoughtful and reflective spirit. If your mind is already made up, then you probably won't hear anything from either of us tonight that will change your mind. But for those of you who are still searching for an answer, I hope that our discussion of the evidence, both pro and con, will be really beneficial to you. Now, I'll leave it up to Vic Stenger to present the evidence against God's existence. In my opening speech, I want to sketch briefly six lines of evidence that weigh in favor of God's existence. Number one, God is the best explanation for why something exists rather than nothing. This is the deepest question of philosophy. Why is there anything rather than nothing? Experience teaches that anything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in its own nature or in an external cause. You see, anything that exists is either one of two types. The first type is something that exists necessarily by its own nature. Example, many mathematicians believe numbers and other abstract objects exist in this way. If such entities exist, they just exist necessarily, without any cause of their being. The other type is anything that has an external cause of its existence. Examples? Mountains, planets, galaxies, and people. They have causes outside themselves which explain why they exist. Now, it's obvious that the universe exists. It therefore follows that the universe has an explanation of its existence. But what sort of explanation is it? Well, it seems plausible 
that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is an external, transcendent, personal cause. Why? Because the cause must be greater than the universe. Think of the universe, all of space and time. So the cause of the universe must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else an intelligent mind. But abstract objects don't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the explanation of the universe is an external, transcendent, personal cause, which is what everybody means minimally by God. Number two, God's existence is implied by the origin of the universe. The atheist could try to escape the argument that I just gave by saying that the universe exists necessarily by its own nature. But this second argument blocks that escape route. For anything that exists necessarily must exist eternally. Think about it. If a thing came into existence or ceased to exist, then we know that its non-existence is possible. That is to say, it doesn't exist necessarily. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the British physicist P.C.W. Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Not only does this imply that the universe is not necessary in its existence, but it also raises the inevitable question, why? Why did the universe come into being 13 billion years ago? What brought the universe into existence? Well, unless you're willing to say that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of absolutely nothing, there must be a transcendent cause beyond space and time which created the universe. Thus, from one, everything that comes into being has a cause, and two, the universe came into being, it follows logically that therefore three, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. We've already seen one reason why this cause must be personal. Let me give another. How else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe. If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without its effect. If the cause were eternally present, then the effect would be eternally present as well. 
The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin to exist in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number three, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life points to a designer of the cosmos. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow, I mean, I cannot convey how almost infinitesimal this is, an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by even a hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. For example, if the atomic weak force or the force of gravity were altered by as little as one part in 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life-permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning, either physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because, as we've seen, the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. So, could the fine-tuning be due to chance? The problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine-tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. The probability that all the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. So, if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that the universe would be life-prohibiting. Hence, the fine-tuning is not due to either physical necessity or chance. But logically, that implies, therefore, it is due to design. Thus, the fine-tuning of the universe implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Number four. Objective moral values are plausibly grounded in God. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid and binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. 
Many theists and atheists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in this way. Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? Like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the values evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just uh, socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Roos himself admits the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence, I think we all know that objective values do exist. But then it follows logically and inescapably that, therefore, God exists. Number five, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just accept by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. 
Fact number one. On the Sunday, following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, uh, an Austrian specialist in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two. On separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic of Vanderbilt University, Gerald Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by skeptics, unbelievers, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. Therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. And thus we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God based on the resurrection of Jesus. There are three established facts about Jesus, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Two, the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, is the best explanation of these facts. Three, that hypothesis entails that God exists, for, therefore, God exists. Finally, number six, you can experience God personally. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a danger that arguments for God could actually distract your attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises... Draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. In conclusion, then, we've seen six reasons to think that God exists. If Dr. Stenger wants us to believe atheism instead, then he must first tear down all six of the reasons that I presented and in their place erect a case of his own to show that atheism is true. Unless and until he does that, I think that belief in God is the more plausible worldview. Thank you, Dr. Stenger. We will now turn to Dr. Stenger for his 20-minute opening statement. Okay. Well, aloha. It's certainly wonderful to be back in Hawaii, where Phyllis and I spent so many happy years. Our children were both born in Hawaii, both graduated here from the University of Hawaii, and it's certainly great to be back. In fact, it's almost exactly 40 years to the day that we first landed in Hawaii, and this is the first time we've actually visited Hawaii in all that time. And uh, so we're here as tourists, and now I can see why, why so many people keep coming back to visit Hawaii. So I'd like to express uh, thanks to Kalihi and the other organizers and the sponsors of this debate for inviting me. It's certainly an honor to share the, plat the platform with William Lane Craig. I read that he's one of the world's most foremost Christian apologists, and he's given ample evidence for that today. Now, in his opening remarks, Dr. Craig has appealed to your, uh, your common sense. Well, you know what common sense is. Common sense is a human faculty which tells us that the earth is flat. Uh, on the other hand, objective observation tells us that the earth is round. In, in tonight's debate, I will argue that objective observation, as well as reason and logic, lead to the conclusion that a God with the traditional attributes of the Christian God does not exist beyond a shadow of a doubt. I will give four arguments to support my position. Number one, the attributes of the Christian God are self-contradictory. They're like a square circle. Number two, the attributes of the Christian God are self are, are self inconsistent with what we know about the world. Number three, Supernatural explanations for events in the universe are unnecessary. Natural explanations are simpler, are based on objective observations, and are fully consistent with all we know about the world. Number four, the attributes of the Christian God imply actions that should be objectively observable, but they are not. God has not been detected. Let me list a set of attributes that are traditionally associated 
with the God of the monotheistic religions, but particularly Christianity. He's the creator of the universe. He's immaterial and transcendent. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and indeed perfect in every way. Furthermore, God is a person. He loves humans and wishes us to know him. He's forgiving and merciful. Speaks to humans, revealing truths to us that we would not otherwise know. And he answers prayers as he sees fit and performs miracles violating natural laws. Now many philosophers have argued that the traditional attributes of God are logically incompatible. Here are just a few of these. Let's consider perfect versus creator. If God is perfect, then he has no needs or wants. This is incompatible with the notion that God created the universe for some divine purpose. Divine purpose implies that God wants something he doesn't already have, which makes him imperfect. Transcendent versus omnipresent. How can a God beyond space and time be at the same time everywhere in space and time? Just versus merciful. To be just means to treat a person exactly as they deserve. To be merciful means to treat a person better than they deserve. You can't do both. Immaterial versus personal. To be a person is to have a material body, to have a brain, to have a, a mouth that you speak with, and so on. So God, with these and, and many of the other attributes that are traditionally assigned to him, does not exist. Now, the God of monotheism also has attributes that are inconsistent with what we know about the world. For example, an all-powerful, all-knowing God, who also has the attribute of wanting all humans to know and love him, is inconsistent with the fact that there are non-believers in the world. Perhaps the most ancient and strongest of the arguments for God's non-existence is the problem of evil. An all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God is simply inconsistent with the fact of evil and gratuitous suffering in the world. Now, theologians have, of course, grappled with the problem of evil for centuries, and they still do. For example, a, a prominent contemporary uh, theologian, Richard Swinburne, says of the problem of evil, if the world was out any natural evil and suffering, we wouldn't have the opportunity to show courage, patience, and sympathy. Yeah, certainly pain and, and, uh, has a role in warning us of illness and injury. But does God really need so much suffering to achieve his ends? Is there any good purpose behind so many children dying every day in the world with starvation and disease, perhaps one every few seconds? How are they helped by the rest of us becoming more sympathetic? Now, Dr. Craig and many other theologians have spent their lives building models of a God that are logically consistent 
and at the same time in broad agreement with the traditional teachings of, of Christianity. Now this has mainly consisted of trimming God's characteristics one by one until he's defined mostly in the negative. Non-material, not in space and time, not seen or heard. Apologists have reduced God to an almost undetectable background, something like what we physicists used to call the ether, until we found that the ether doesn't exist either. Now, I have no doubt that a logically consistent picture of some kind of God can be devised, and I've never claimed to disprove the existence of every conceivable God, that's why I've been very careful to focus on a God with the traditional attributes of, of uh, Christianity in particular, but to some extent the other monotheistic religions as well. Now, while that's possible to uh, create a logically consistent God, I have seriously doubts that that God could be made consistent with Christianity. In any case, uh, these theologians and their logically, logically consistent gods remind me of the creators <coughs> of computer games. Programmers invent whole new universes in which the characters have all kinds of superhuman powers and many of our familiar laws of physics are violated, yet these games are all logically consistent. They wouldn't run on a computer if they weren't. But the computer game universes have little connection to the universe we see around us. They don't exist in our reality, they exist in what's called virtual reality. Well, just because something is logically consistent, it doesn't necessarily follow that it exists. For the theologian's logically consistent God to actually exist, he must have something to do with the observed universe, some attributes that can be objectively observed. Otherwise, God is as useless as the ether. Now, even if a God can be devised who is consistent with logic, and with observations, natural explanations for phenomena are still better than supernatural ones. They better explain the existence of non-believers. They also better explain the existence of believers. They, they explain the existence of evil and gratuitous suffering, the unfortunate result of evolution. They better explain the origin and structure of the universe, of life and mind. And these notions are based on objective observations and theories that are testable. Supernaturalism, on the other hand, offers no explanation at all, except God did it. And to say God did it, as Dr. Craig does, it, it passes us on no more information than to say Santa Claus did it, or the Easter Bunny did it. It could be any entity. Now, only 7% of the members of the National Academy of Sciences believe in the per, uh, personal God worshipped by perhaps 80 to 90% of other Americans. Most scientists don't believe in God because they don't see any objective evidence for him. When they look at the world around them, they see no sign of God. They don't see God when they peer through their most 
powerful telescopes. They don't detect God with their most sophisticated microscopes and other instruments. Furthermore, scientists find no need to introduce God or the supernatural in any form into any of their explanatory theories. Here are a few of the famous scientists who have been outspoken in their non-belief. Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Richard Feynman, Stephen Jay Gould, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the uh, structure of DNA, Stephen Weinberg, perhaps uh, the world's greatest living theoretical physicist, and the incomparable Carl Sagan. Now let me add that none of these scientists uh, would not believe if they were presented with sufficient evidence. Now, a God with the attributes I've listed implies phenomena that should have been easily, easily observed by now. For example, let's consider three actions, revelation, prayers, and miracles. Let's begin with revelation. Most people believe in a God who has a substantial and detectable role in the universe and in human affairs. One common characteristic attributed to this God is that he communicates with humans and provides them with verifiable new knowledge. The, the uh, theistic religions have traditionally taught that God speaks to humanity. Their scriptures are widely assumed to be the word of God. And he's believed to have revealed knowledge to religious leaders in the past that they would not otherwise have known. Many people uh, believe that God still does this today, speaking even to average persons. Now, surprisingly, these claims are easily verifiable if they're true. All we have to do is find some fact supposedly gained by divine revelation that was unknown at the time of the revelation and then confirm this fact at a later time. For example, suppose the Bible had predicted that men would walk on the moon in 2,000 years. Then we would have a rational basis to take seriously what else is written in the Bible. Unfortunately, we do not. No revelation of previously unknown knowledge has ever been empirically validated. The scriptures contain nothing that could not have been known to or imagined by the ancients who wrote them. The Bible reads exactly as we would expect it to read based on existing knowledge at the time it was composed. Furthermore, there are many examples of the failure to confirm biblical revelations. Consider the failed prophecy of the second coming. In uh, Matthew 24:30, Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And a few verses later, he says, I will tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, we're still waiting. It was supposed to happen 2,000 years ago. It's time to give up and move on. Now, those who have claimed to talk to God have provided no knowledge that was not already in their heads. 
Many people have claimed religious experiences in which they felt the presence of God, but they never returned from these experiences with any exceptional knowledge that could easily verify their claim. What I'm saying is that there is a way that God can be detected, and this is one of them, and it has not been. Furthermore, religious experiences can be induced in the brain by drugs, electromagnetic pulses, and oxygen deprivation. For example, when uh, pilots undergo high-G training in a centrifuge, they will often experience the kind of tunneling of their vision, narrowing of their vision with light at the end of the tunnel. That is characteristic of the near-death experience that's supposed to have religious significance. Now, you might say God has chosen to hide himself from us. He certainly has, if he exists, has hidden himself from us. However, St. Paul uh, makes it very clear that even though God is invis invisible, his, uh, his nature and deity have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. In other words, God may be invisible, but his actions are visible. Theists might respond that God's actions are obvious to those who wish to see them. Well, I would love to see them, but they're not obvious to me or to the millions of other non-believers in the world. Another commonly believed attribute of God is that he listens to entreaties from humans to change the natural course of events. He can be expected to grant a sufficient number of these requests so that the results should be observable. Otherwise, what's the point of praying? Now, many people will testify that they've had their prayers answered. But personal testimony is insufficient since it doesn't rule out other more mundane, simpler, natural explanations. For example, if someone recovers, uh, someone is ill and then recovers after praying, it could be that the prayers had nothing to do with it. After all, the body, sometimes with medical help, does a pretty good job of healing itself. In fact, it works every time, except once, the last time. Now, if prayer had value in healing, we'd have doctors prescribing prayer aspirin. Say three Our Fathers and four Hail Marys and call me in the morning. Now, convincing evidence for God, a God who answers prayers, can in principle be scientifically demonstrated. It's not impossible. With high pr uh, probability, if it really exists. Well-designed de well experiments on intercessory prayer should turn up solid, statistically significant results on the success of prayer in healing. In fact, some studies claiming positive effects of prayer have been published in refereed medical journals, the great media hoopla. However, you can't rely on media reports, but need to look at the actual published papers. Applying the same criteria that are used in conventional science when testing extraordinary claims, you'll find that none of the reported effects is significant. Furthermore, most of the experiments are severely flawed and none have the claim, uh, of the claimed positive effects have ever been successfully replicated. Perhaps the best study was done by the Mayo Clinic a few years ago. They studied some 800 patients over a period of half a year. The patients were divided up into were coronary patients. They were divided up into two groups, some prayed for and some not prayed for and the results 
were no significant effect uh, on that would suggest that prayer had any good whatsoever. So let me summarize. Number one, the traditional attributes of God are self-contradictory. So such a God cannot exist. Two, the traditional attributes of God are incompatible with objective facts about the world. So such a God cannot exist. Natural explanations are superior to supernatural explanations. No basis exists for anything supernatural. Four, the traditional attributes of God imply actions that should be objectively observed, but they're not. It's possible to hypothesize a God whose attributes are logically compatible with each other, but it does not follow that such a God exists unless it has, unless he has, objectively observable consequences. And as I said, no consequences have been observed. So if God exists, where is he? Thank you. In the next phase of tonight's discussion, our two debaters will each have 12 minutes to present their rebuttal, the response to the opening statements of their opponent. We will begin. Dr. Craig. In his opening statement, Victor Stenger presents four arguments which he says prove with certainty that God does not exist. Well, can he maintain that high standard of proof? Let's look at the arguments. First, he alleges that the attributes of God are self-contradictory. Now, this is actually my area of specialization as a philosopher, so I was very interested in hearing his arguments here. Unfortunately, we heard merely assertions from Dr. Stenger. I was looking for the argument. Where were his premises? What was the argument that supported these assertions? I don't think that any of the alleged contradictions that he asserted are, in fact, uh, incompatibilities with each other. For example, take God's perfection versus God's being a creator. According to the Christian view of God, God created the universe for the benefit of the creature, not for his own benefit, not from any imperfection in himself, but rather it is a creation so that we might come to know God, the joy and blessedness of, of personal relationship with him. So that creation, just like salvation, is totally by God's grace. It is an expression of his overflowing love. The knowledge of God is what we were made for as human beings, and we find our ultimate fulfillment in knowledge of him. He says, what about transcendence versus omnipresence? Well, traditionally, omnipresence has not been interpreted to mean that God is diffused throughout the universe like some sort of invisible ether. Rather, omnipresence means that God is causally active at and knows what is happening at every point in space. And that's entirely compatible with his being transcendent and the cause of space and time. What about his justice versus his mercy? Here I find one of the greatest beauties of the Christian faith is the reconciliation of God's justice and mercy. 
they meet at the cross. At the cross, we see God's love for humanity expressed as the second person of the Trinity dies in our place to take upon himself the death penalty of sin that we deserve. He voluntarily undergoes the most excruciating suffering to reconcile us to God. And yet at the same time, we see the justice of God as God's just punishment for sin is meted out, but he takes it upon himself in the person of Christ so that the justice and the mercy of God meet at the cross. At the cross, we see the most beautiful reconciliation and expression of the mercy and justice of God. Finally, what about immateriality versus being personal? Well, I would invite Dr. Stenger to give any argument to show that persons are essentially material beings. On the contrary, I would say that persons are essentially immaterial beings. We are souls conjoined with a body. God is an unembodied soul, if you will, or mind that transcends the universe. So there's no incompatibility there. So I think uh, philosophers have generally recognized that the traditional concept of God, at least as Dr. Stinger has attacked it, is entirely coherent and compatible. And the question is, is there evidence for such a being? Well, his second argument was that the evil in the world is inconsistent with the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Again, he merely asserted this, but I would like to hear the premises to the argument. Philosophers have come to recognize that there is no logical inconsistency between the propositions an all-powerful, all-loving God exists and evil exists. And if Dr. Stinger thinks he can show those are logically inconsistent, then I'd simply invite him to do so. It's generally recognized that no one's been able to show those propositions are inconsistent. In fact, you can actually prove that they're consistent by adding a third premise, namely, God has a morally sufficient reason to permit evil. So long as that is even possible, it follows that those propositions are entirely compatible. The atheist seems to think that if God has morally sufficient reasons to permit evil, then I must somehow be privy to these. But there's absolutely no reason to think that I must know God's mind or know all of the reasons that he has for permitting the evil and suffering in the world. So unless Dr. Stanger can show that it is impossible that God have morally sufficient reasons for permitting pain and evil in the world, his argument is simply uh, invalid. Second thing I would say about this is that I think that paradoxically evil is actually proof of the existence of God. The argument would go like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Second, evil exists. Namely, some things are really wrong. Three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Four, therefore, God exists. So while on a superficial level, evil seems to call into question God's existence, on a deeper, more philosophical level, evil actually proves God's existence because in the absence of God, good and evil as such would not exist. Dr. Stenger's third argument was that naturalistic explanations are preferable to supernaturalistic explanations. Well, it may surprise him to hear me say that I entirely agree with that. Whenever you have two explanations that are available, a naturalistic one or a supernaturalistic one, I would say as a methodological principle, you go first with the naturalistic explanation. And it's only when the good naturalistic explanation is not available that one would be justified in preferring a supernaturalistic explanation. But Dr. Stinger's real complaint is that a supernaturalistic explanation is no explanation at all. He says just to say God did it doesn't explain anything. 
But you notice that wasn't the structure of my arguments. My arguments, many of them, were deductive. That is to say, if the premises are true, then the conclusion follows logically and inescapably, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's explanatory or not. For example, everything that comes into being has a cause. The universe came into being, therefore the universe has a cause. And then you do an analysis of what is to be a cause of the universe. Or, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. But objective values do exist, therefore it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. So when you're dealing with deductive arguments, it really doesn't matter whether you like the explanation or not. As long as the premises are true, the conclusion is logically inescapable. As for the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, this was a hypothesis that forms the basis of an inference to the best explanation in terms of the standard historical criteria used for uh, historical justification, such as explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, and so forth. And I think in every one of the cases that I enunciated this evening, we do have good grounds for inferring what we could call a supernatural explanation. Finally, number four, he says that God's action should be observable in the world. And what I would respond to that is that there is abundant evidence of God's actions in the world. Uh, in fact, what I would say is that the very existence of the universe itself is abundant evidence for the existence of God, as I explained. If God exists, what greater evidence should we expect of his being than the origin of the universe out of absolutely nothing at some point in the finite past? The fine-tuning of the universe to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. The existence of an objective realm of moral values. The resurrection and radical claims of Jesus of Nazareth and the interpersonal experience of God himself. Dr. Stenger, to carry his argument, would have to show that if God existed, we ought to have more evidence than that. And it seems to me that that's just pure speculation, pure presumption. So I think we have quite good evidence for God's existence, and therefore none of his four arguments are sound. Now, what about the reasons that I gave? I'd like to uh, advance these a little bit further. First, the argument from existence. Here, the, the question is the very existence of the universe. Even if you say the universe is eternal, the question is why does an eternal universe exist rather than nothing? You have to have a necessary, transcendent being that is the sufficient reason for why anything exists rather than nothing. What about the argument from the beginning of the universe? What brought the universe into being? Well, in his book, Dr. Stenger proposes that the initial instant of time, t equals zero, is not only the beginning of our time, but it is also the beginning of a backward-growing time as well, as in figure one. And he takes this to be equivalent to an eternally existing universe with no beginning. Unfortunately, Dr. Stinger's scenario is self-contradictory and incoherent. For on his theory, T equals negative 1 is supposed to be after T equals 0. But by drawing negative time on the same axis as positive time, T equals negative 1 also turns out to be before t equals zero, which is self-contradictory. Since t equals zero is supposed to be the beginning of both time dimensions, in order to avoid contradiction, Dr. Stinger should have drawn the two time axes perpendicular to each other, as in uh, figure two. But then it's obvious that on his model, uh, it doesn't avoid the absolute beginning of the universe. Both 
dimensions of time have an absolute origin at t equals zero, and therefore I think the model doesn't avoid the question of what brought the universe into being. What about the argument from fine-tuning? In his book, Dr. Stinger invite, uh, indicts the fine-tuning argument by saying, well, some other form of life might have evolved had the fine-tuning not existed. Uh, perhaps life based on silicon instead of carbon. And what I want to say here is that if we're to avoid talking nonsense here, we need to define what we mean clearly by life. By life, scientists mean that property of organisms to take in food, extract energy from it, adapt, grow, and reproduce. And the point is that in order to permit life, the constants and quantities have to be so finely tuned that it is incomprehensible. Scientists who study this are fully aware of alternative proposed bases for life, and the problem is they don't work. For example, take silicon. Silicon is hopelessly inadequate as a basis for life for a number of reasons. It is no coincidence that there is no living thing made out of silicon. Nothing made out of silicon is alive. Dr. Stenger is reduced to saying in his article on fine-tuning, computer chips are made of silicon, and the network of computer chips known as the World Wide Web seems to have taken on a life of its own. Well, come on now. Uh, when biologists talk about life, they don't mean it in this metaphorical sense. They're talking about life in the sense that I defined it. And the point is that that kind of life could not exist based on silicon. Even more importantly, silicon itself wouldn't even exist without the fine-tuning of the universe. Without the fine-tuning of the universe, in many cases, there wouldn't even be chemistry. There wouldn't even be the heavy elements. So that the fine-tuning of the universe, I think, is simply a scientific fact. And the question is, how do you best explain it? Well, neither physical necessity nor chance can explain it, and I think that suggests that design is the best uh, alternative. The other arguments I, I don't have time to reinforce in this speech, but I'll uh, wait to hear Dr. Stenger's reputation of those in his rebuttal uh, and then comment perhaps during the dialogue time on what he has to say. Dr. Stenger now has 12 minutes for his rebuttal. Okay, thank you. Could you put my uh, slides up? Good. Well, I'm going to respond uh, now mainly to uh, Dr. Craig's opening remarks. However, I will add, try to add some further comments on what he's just said. Now, Carl Sagan has said that Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And he probably wasn't the first one to say that. Well, Dr. Craig has made what I regard as the extraordinary claim that certain empirical facts require a supernatural explanation. Now, in order to refute that, all I need to do is provide plausible natural explanations for these phenomena. I need not prove these if he wants to argue that God is required to exist in order to explain the observed universe, Dr. Craig must disprove all possible natural explanations for these phenomena. Let's start with his cosmological argument. Dr. Craig argues that whatever begins must have a cause, the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe 
must have had a cause. However, we know from physics that not everything that begins has a cause. Physical bodies begin to exist all the time without cause. That's considered radioactive decay of an atomic nucleus. Uh, the alpha particle or beta particle or gamma particle that are, uh, that are emitted in the radioactive decay, uh, those particles come into being, come into existence without a cause. The beginning of the Big Bang, the universe was like a subatomic particle. So these ideas could apply. Again, I can't prove it, but I don't have to prove it. That here is one example that that refutes Dr. Craig's claim that everything begins must have a cause. But even if everything that begins has a cause, it does not apply. Uh, this does not necessarily apply to the universe if the universe did not have a beginning. Dr. Craig argues that the Big Bang is evidence that the universe had a beginning. However, the universe need not have begun with the Big Bang. And I'm not talking about this one particular speculation from my book. There are many prominent physicists and cosmologists who published papers in reputable scientific journals proposing various scenarios by which the Big Bang appeared naturally out of a pre-existing universe that need not of itself have had a beginning. One such recent example is the cyclic universe. Now, Dr. Craig also claims that the universe had to begin because if it were in, 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 infinitely old, it would take an infinite time to reach the present. However, if the universe is infinitely old, then it had no beginning, not a beginning infinitely long ago. Furthermore, the universe can be finite, and I actually believe the universe is finite. It can be finite and still not have a beginning. Einstein defined time as what you read on a clock. It's a number, the number of ticks on the clock. We count forward time, one, two, three, four, five ticks. We never reach uh, infinite, infinite time. We could also count time backward and never reach minus infinity. The notion that the universe had either a beginning or, had an, or will have an end are theological notions, not scientific ones. Now, what about this fine-tuning argument? Again, it's an argument that is based on the low probability of our kind of life. And that means not only means carbon-based life, but also life uh, with the existing physical laws as as we know them. Now, even if the probability of a particular form of life was highly improbable to occurred by natural processes, some kind of life would be could still be highly probable. Probably not silicon life. I agree, silicon is, is a poor candidate. But that's with our existing laws of physics. Another form of life might still evolve in a universe with different physical laws or different 
physical constants. We simply don't have the knowledge to rule that out. To, to say that there's only one possible form of life and only one possible set of, of laws of physics and only one possible set of constants is extremely narrow thinking and not at all required by anything that we know about science. Now, in this argument and other arguments about the um, design in the universe, uh, Dr. Craig claims that the universe and life are too improbable to be solely natural. However, this is a fallacious argument. To use probability to decide between two alternatives requires a comparison of the probabilities of each alternative. Dr. Craig claims these, these natural probabilities are exceedingly low. But he hasn't told us anything about what the supernatural probabilities are, and it's a comparison of these two that must be made. What's the probability that the laws of nature are violated? What's the probability that there's an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing, but undetectable super-being behind all of this? Complex things are common. We see natural events every moment. We've never seen a supernatural event. Furthermore, low-probability events happen every day. What's the probability that my distinguished opponent exists? You have to calculate the probability that a particular sperm united with a particular egg, then multiply that by the probability that his parents met, and then repeat that calculation for his grandparents and all his ancestors going back to the beginning of life on Earth. Now, even if you stop the calculation with Adam and Eve, you're going to get a fantastically small number. To use the words that Dr. Craig has used before, improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. Well, Dr. Craig has a mind-reeling, incomprehensibly low probability, a priori probability, for existing. Yet here he is before us today. <laughs> now, modern versions of the argument from design, both the fine-tuning argument and the intelligent design argument, share this fatal flaw. They are based on the idea that natural causes can be ruled out by some arbitrary notion of low probability. Now, Dr. Craig also asks, why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the universe exist rather than nothing? Well, why should nothing be a more natural state than something? Why would you expect nothing rather than something? In fact, how could nothing even exist? If it existed, wouldn't it be something? And finally, why is the God rather than nothing? Dr. Craig doesn't answer those questions. Now, Dr. Craig also claims that the Big Bang confirms the biblical view of creation. But what does Genesis actually say? It says that the earth was created before the sun, moon, and stars. This is at odds with modern cosmology, which says that the earth did not form until seven billion years after the Big Bang. There are many other disagreements. 
Genesis implies that the universe is only about 6,000 years old. Here's a picture of a quasar. The light from this quasar left 12 billion years ago, billions and billions of years before the Earth was even formed. Now, every one of the thousand or so religions in the world has a creation myth. Uh, most of them probably resemble modern cosmology as well or better than Genesis. Here we are in Polynesia, and some of the Polynesian myths are more closely resembling to the modern cosmology than, than uh, Genesis. Now, Dr. Craig calls upon our common sense, our inner feelings, to attest that morality is objective and so must come from God. Well, not everyone shares the same morals, so there's no evidence for objective morality. But even if morality were objective, its source could be natural, an evolutionary process that aids in human survival and is built into our genes. I don't see how Dr. Craig has disproved that possibility. Now, Dr. Craig claims that the gospel stories describe actual historical events, such as the empty tomb. Well, there's no evidence for this outside the Bible. The story of the empty tomb is second and third hand, written years after the event, from the oral testimony of supposed eyewitnesses. Paul did not even know about it, yet Paul regarded the resurrection as, as very important, yet he didn't know anything about the empty tomb. Furthermore, eyewitness testimony is, high, is notoriously reliable. But even if the story of the empty tomb is accurate, you could have a simple, natural explanation that Dr. Craig seems to think most scholars don't believe, but I don't see how they know that. If you were to go to Napoleon's tomb in Paris one morning and found that his remains were not in their usual place of honor, would you conclude that Napoleon had risen bodily into heaven? Hardly. You would figure that somebody took the body. Dr. Craig cannot prove that Jesus' body could not have been removed by somebody. So that remains a more plausible natural explanation, and a supernatural explanation is not required by the data. On personal experience, Dr. Craig says that uh, uh, our personal experience should tell us that God exists. However, that's subjective, and not everyone shares that experience. So plausible natural explanations exist for all phenomena in the universe. God is not required to explain the universe, and so Dr. Craig has not proved that God exists, and I'll stop at that point. Thank you. I'm a professor of English, but my Ph.D. is in psychology. And as a psychologist, I know that no question we can imagine, no answer we can begin to fathom is any better than our consciousness, because our consciousness is the only tool we have ultimately to know. And every one of us in this room knows that human consciousness plays tricks on us. So, gentlemen, my question for you is, how do we know 
even that we're asking a legitimate question, more or less, that you are providing us with true answers. Dr. Craig? Well, I think that depends on what your tests for truth are. And here I think I would agree with what Vic Stinger said in his opening speech, is that we will use reason and logic coupled with observation to uh, construct our arguments and to test for the truth of the conclusions. Uh, a good argument for a conclusion must be logically valid. That is to say, it has to follow the rules of logic. And then the premises must be true. And in, if the premises are true and the argument is logical, then the conclusion is established as true. So I think what Vic Stinger said was reason and logic coupled with observation will be our guide to truth. Vic, can you tell me why our question is good and your answer is correct? Well, I, I, since he agrees with me, that's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. But I think it has to... One of, one of the problems with, with logic is, of course, every, everything that you conclude is already there in the premises. So if, if you're hiding the premise that God exists, then you can come to no other conclusion except God exists, and, and, and vice versa. And that's why we've come in, in, in science uh, to rely on empirical facts, and in particular the ability of, of the theories that we developed to make some kind of prediction, provide some kind of observation that could be testable. This is why I tried to provide two such ones, the case of Revelation and the case of, uh, of prayer. These, these are phenomena that could be tested scientifically and have been tested scientifically and, and provide no uh, evidence. So, Dr. Craig, your first question for Dr. Stenger. Um, well, it's difficult to know where to begin. Um, I guess uh, let's start with your arguments against God's existence, which you claim attain to certainty. Um, I challenged you to provide for me or for us some sort of clear argument to show that these attributes of God are, in fact, incompatible with each other. Can you actually do that for us? Well, of course, you made assertions that they weren't, that I think were equally uh, un, uh, uh, filled out in any kind of, of detail. You, you just basically try to tell me that, that uh, theologians have solved the problem. Well, they haven't solved the problem in my mind. I don't see how you can reconcile, uh, uh, for example, perfection and and the creator, and uh, there have been any number of other All right, well, give me the that. argument for that, to show that perfection and being a creator are, are logically incompatible with each other. Well, if you're perfect, if God is perfect, then he has no needs or wants. A creator creates the universe for a divine purpose. That implies that he has something that he doesn't want. Okay, and I would disagree with that premise. Okay. The, the, I suggested that the reason he could create wouldn't be for any sort of a divine need or, or a lack, but rather it would be for the benefit of the creature. Could we pause here and go back to our originally agreed upon format? Dr. Stenger, do you have a question oh. for Dr. Okay. Stenger? Okay. All right. How can you rely on the Bible as a, a source of morality? Because you're claiming that we get our morality 
from God, and presumably you, you, the word of God is, is in the Bible, when there's uh, so much in it that we, we would consider immoral, that a humanist like myself would consider immoral. The, uh, the Old Testament in particular has many instances of, of, of rape, of slavery, of murder condoned by God. And even the New Testament, I think, is a bit immoral when Jesus uh, says, you have, to, you have to follow me or else you burn in hell uh, eternally. I don't consider that a very high moral code to uh, live up to. All right, two things I think could be said here. First of all, I wasn't using the Bible as an argument for morality. What I said was that if there isn't any God, then objective moral values don't exist. They're just the sociobiological uh, spin-off of human evolution. Uh, but that I think objective values do exist. We sense that uh, in moral experience that things like raping a little child, torturing a child for fun, uh, are wrong. And in your speech, you agreed with the first premise. You said there is no evidence for objective morality, that this can just be objectively, uh, exp uh, naturally explained. So the, the, the humanist cannot indict the Bible for being immoral because the, the uh, naturalist agrees that there isn't any evidence for objective morality. So the, the minute he starts to indict the, the, the Bible as being immoral, he's presupposing a standard of morality to which uh, the Bible has to, to measure up, which so, contradicts your your. No, I, I, I argued, I, I allowed for the possibility that objective morality exists, something that we all agree upon. No, no, that's uh, not what objective means. Remember, I said objective means something that's valid and binding independently of whether anybody agreed upon it or not. For example, say to say the Holocaust was objectively wrong, means that it was wrong even if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed or exterminated everybody who disagreed with them so that everybody thought the Holocaust was good. But to say the Holocaust is objectively wrong means that it's wrong independently of whether anybody thinks so or not. And I think many theists and atheists agree that without God, then morality isn't objective in that way. And I thought that's what you were agreeing in. Your well, I just, I just don't see where in any, in any way or form of anything you've said uh, requires that uh, that God uh, is necessary for objective morality, even if objective morality exists. I don't see why it can't be uh, uh, something that's developed uh, through the evolution of, of the human species. Well, very okay. simply, pause again. Well, Dr. Stenger, do you have a question for Dr. Craig? Okay. Is there any kind of evidence? I mean, you're, you're, you, know, I, you uh, are a Christian and you, you work very hard to show that uh, the Christian God is, is, uh, is compatible with, with logic and, and with, with observation. I was just wondering if, if there was any evidence that would cause you to change your mind. If there's something, some, like I've given you one, I've given one example uh, of something that would convince me, such as, a, such as the Bible or some other yeah. uh, sort revealed source had come up with something that was testable, uh, I think that uh, I could come around to believe. What about something well, that would cause you to uh, change your view on belief? I think that the tact that you took in your arguments was a good one, that if you could show that the attributes of God are in fact self-contradictory, you're absolutely right, then such a being doesn't exist. Or if you could show 
that God cannot have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the suffering in the world, I'd have to give up belief in God. So I think that those arguments are, are on the right track. I just don't think they're successful arguments. Uh, if you could show me that Jesus of Nazareth didn't rise from the dead, if archaeologists found you know, the, the bone box of Jesus, uh, then one would have to give up being a Christian. So Christianity or Christian theism is very much, um, it gets its hands dirty in the world. It, it's not a religion that is ethereal and removed from, the, from falsification in the world. It, it's, it's, it, God's fingerprints are all over this universe, I think. And if you could show, for example, that his attributes are self-contradictory or that he couldn't have reasons for permitting evil or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you'd have to give up Christian theism. We have your next question for Dr. Singer. Well, yeah, let me ask this. With respect to your refutations of my arguments, um, you said all you have to do is to provide some possible naturalistic explanation in order to defuse the force of my argument. Now, wouldn't you agree, Vic, that it's not enough merely to show a possible naturalistic explanation, but you would need to show a naturalistic explanation that is as plausible as the supernaturalistic explanation. I mean, anything is possible. Uh, you know scientists don't get research grants from the government for proposing just possibilities. They, they have to be plausible hypotheses. So wouldn't it, wouldn't it be correct that what you need to do is to provide naturalistic explanations that are as plausible as the theistic explanation? I'll, I'll accept plausible. If I said possible, I... I really meant plausible. I, I thought I had okay. written plausible, plausible, possible, because uh, because that certainly is my view that uh, that the naturalistic explanations are the more plausible. They're the simpler. Uh, we we have as long, and as long as we have some model, such as the one I talked about concerning the the uh, origin of the Big Bang, if these models are are in agreement with all existing knowledge even though we can't prove them to be correct, they do get published in the top physics journals and their, and their uh, articles are written by very reputable physicists. So this, this exercise is taken seriously. And uh, if, if, it's, if it's there as a plausible explanation and it agrees with everything that we know, then it's going to always be preferable over something that we have no information about whatsoever, just, in, just a hypothesis of, of an unknown entity. Okay, Dr. Stenger, another question? Oh, I have to ask another question. Yes, um, I'd like to get back to the morality thing. If, yeah. let me put it in a, a different way, if, if religion, whatever form, was necessary for morality, then wouldn't you expect that the non-religious would be less moral than the religious? Yet I think the evidence is not there. In fact, it even might be a bit on the other side. Uh, witness the debaucheries of the Catholic Church. Uh, take, take the child uh, abuse in families. It's higher among Christians uh, proportionately than any other group. There are more Christians in jail proportionately than any other group. And you, and you really don't find too many humanists, for example, in jail. 
Well, you don't find too many humanists anyplace. But, uh, a lot of people become Christians in jail. <laughs> well, but I think. But I think. Yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you br brought us back to this issue because I think this is important. As I said, my argument is not at all that in order to live a moral and decent life, you have to believe in God. Uh, on the contrary, in fact, the Bible actually teaches that God's moral law is instinctively written on the heart of every person so that we have an instinctual moral knowledge that we ought to love our children rather than torture them uh, and abuse them. Um, so I don't think at all that it, it would follow that people who are quote-unquote religious are going to be more moral than somebody who's not religious. Rather, my argument is that if you don't have a God as a transcendent anchor or basis for morality, then moral values are purely ephemeral byproducts of sociobiological evolution. And if you ran the film of evolution in reverse and then started it up again, you might have gotten totally different creatures with a totally different set of moral values that evolved. And there's no way that one of them could say, ah, but our morality is objective and true. And the other ones would say, uh, oh, no, no, our morality is objective and, and true. From, from the biological uh, system of evolution, you can't get an objective system of, or grounding for moral values. It leads immediately to sociocultural relativism. And that's why I think you have to have a transcendent anchor for the grounding of objective values. We have only a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to get the last question. And could I ask you each for a 45-second answer? What, how do we know truly that we're objective? How do we know objectively oh. that we're being objective? Yeah. I don't think any of us are totally objective. Uh, uh, that is one of the few <laughs> insights of postmodernists, I think. I, I don't think they have many good insights, but one of them would be that all of us are historically conditioned. We're... we're midstream, so to speak, and therefore the search for a kind of pristine objectivity and neutral point of view, view from nowhere, is really impossible. But what we have to do is simply try to do our best to reason logically, to obey the rules of logic, and then to use our best evidence. And we can check this with others. I, I think that's the value of these debates, uh, to, okay. to, to participate Stenger, like this. Can you tell me how I can know objectively that you're being objective? Oh, that I'm being objective? That wasn't the same, <laughs> that wasn't the same question. That wasn't the same question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, how can we know that one he's of, one being of, objective? One of the, the points about science is that science has, uh, has provided you with a, a procedure for testing uh, Objectivity. In fact, it's even built into our equations. We call it covariance. And, and it means that when you look at something from a different point of view, you better have the same uh, law of physics or else it's, it's incorrect because it can't depend on the observer. And that's the test that one makes. The test that one makes is, is uh, that to, in order to describe objective reality, what we call objective reality, it has to be something that uh, is the same from all points of view. And that's one thing that's pretty clear about morality, is it's not the same from all points of view. So I, I, you know, I severely doubt that morals are objective, although I've said that just even if they were, I, don't see, I still don't see why the transcendent, uh, there has to be some transcendent source for them. But in any case, the, uh, 
the evidence as viewed by, again, from my scientific point of view, not point at all toward any kind of objective morality. Thank you, gentlemen. At this point, I ask Dr. Hayes to make an announcement and lead us through the end of the debate. We are uh, just about up to the time for each side to give their final statement. As uh, we uh, prepared to do that in discussing before we came in, uh, it was decided it would be good to uh, have a, a, um, an announcement put in here, which is what I am doing now. And it sounds like I'm just talking to fill up time. That's possibly also true. But let, me, let, me make, let me make the announcement while they get ready for their final statement. We are going to have, on Wednesday, September 17, in Bilger Hall, room 152, a follow-up to this debate. The title is, Who Won the Debate on the Existence of God? We will have two people with a background in science, myself in physics, and Alan Stockton with a background in astronomy. We will have two people from the philosophy department, Professor Cheng and Professor Jackson. We will have the chair of the history department and an associate professor from the Department of Religion. And so we will have a balanced professorial follow-up to this debate. And so you're also welcome to come one week from tonight to Bilger Hall, room 152. Now, after we have the final statements, we'll have... Uh, a half hour in which we can have some of you, not very many, obviously, but some of you answer, uh, ask questions that will be answered, and uh, we will come to that shortly. Uh, one week from tonight, we'll have a greater time of interaction uh, with uh, those that come to that. Now it's time for the final statements. The final statement, first, for the theist position, Dr. Craig. In my final statement, I'd like to draw together some of the threads of this uh, debate and see if we can come to some conclusions. I said that in assessing rationally the question of whether God exists, we need to weigh the evidence for and against the existence of God. Well, what evidence have we heard against the existence of God tonight from Vic Stinger? Well, we first heard assertions that various of the attributes of God were incompatible with each other, but I answered those and we've yet to hear a response. Uh, with respect to the problem of evil, I pointed out that no philosopher has been able to prove an inconsistency between the statements that God exists and that evil exists, and that, in fact, we can prove that they are consistent. Indeed, that evil itself proves that God exists, if genuine evil uh, is real. And we heard no response to that. With respect to naturalistic explanations being better than supernaturalistic explanations, I agreed with that methodological principle, and said that as long as uh, plausible naturalistic explanations are available, they ought to be preferred. The question is, are they available? We differ on that issue. Finally, should God's actions be observable? I suggested that there is abundant evidence of the reality of God, and that if Dick Stinger is going to use this as an argument against God, he would have to show that if God exists, there ought to be more evidence of his existence then the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning, a realm of objective moral values, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and religious experience, and I, I don't think he can do that. In other words, basically, I think that we've seen very, very slight, very weak evidence on the atheist side of the scale uh, in tonight's debate. Now, what about reasons for God's existence? Are they any more substantial? Well, I certainly think that they are. 
First, the argument from existence, that anything that exists requires an explanation of its existence, including the universe. Here, Dr. Stinger says, well, but why think that uh, nothing is the more natural state? I'm not claiming nothing is a more natural state. As he said, nothingness isn't a state at all. Nothingness is non-being. It is the absence of anything. And that's why there doesn't need to be an explanation for nothingness, because there isn't anything that requires an explanation. Nothing exists. But anything that exists has to have a reason why it exists, either in an external cause or in the necessity of its own nature. And I don't think Dr. Stenger's ever been able to refute that fundamental principle which underlies all of science. What it means is that there must be some sort of an entity beyond the universe, greater than the universe, which exists necessarily beyond space and time by a necessity of its own nature, which explains the universe. And I also argue that this must be a personal being as well. Secondly, the argument from the beginning of the universe. In his uh, last rebuttal, Dr. Stenger says, well, particles begin to exist without causes. Two responses. First of all, that's simply not true. In quantum physics, the quantum vacuum which spawns these particles is not nothing. It is a sea of fluctuating energy having a rich physical structure, even though it is an indeterministic cause on certain interpretations of quantum physics. Secondly, there are many different interpretations of quantum physics, at least ten I can think of, and some of these are wholly deterministic. And therefore, uh, and, and by the way, nobody knows which of these ten interpretations is correct. And therefore, quantum physics does not furnish a successful counterexample to the principle that everything that comes into being has a cause. Now, Dr. Stinger also says, but uh, you don't need to believe in the Big Bang Theory. There could have been some pre-existing universe, a cyclic universe. But notice that he admits that you must have an equally plausible model. And the fact is that these cyclical models are not equally plausible with the standard Big Bang model. In 1994, Bord uh, and Vilenkin, two astrophysicists, showed that any eternally inflating universe must have a singularity in its past, an absolute beginning. And just last year, Alan Guth, in cooperation with Alexander Vilenkin, were able to extend these results to cyclical, ekpyrotic scenarios, such as Dr. Stinger suggested, also proving that they cannot be past eternal. And this is the repeated pattern of 20th century cosmology. Over and over again, attempts to avert the prediction of the Big Bang in the standard model, the absolute beginning, have been falsified over and over again. Uh, Steady-state theories, oscillating theories, inflationary theories, ekpyrotic scenarios, over and over again, the prediction of the standard model of an absolute beginning has been corroborated. And so I think that that is the plausible view. Certainly the evidence supports the premise that the universe came into being. According to uh, Stephen Hawking, and I quote, almost everyone today agrees that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Dr. Stinger says, well, there could have been a backward growing time prior to the Big Bang, but he didn't answer my arguments that showed that that was incoherent. And when you craft that diagram correctly with two perpendicular axes, it only makes it all the more clear that T equals zero does represent the absolute beginning of the universe. As for the argument from fine-tuning, I think what we saw there was that the probability of the existence of life, as I defined it, is incomprehensibly small uh, 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 given the, the necessity of the fine-tuning of the universe. 
He says, but low probabilities happen all the time. That's a misunderstanding. The argument is not about the probability of this universe existing. It's the probability that any universe would exist, which is life permitting. That probability is not like anybody's winning the lottery where everybody is equally improbable. It's like a lottery where you have a billion, 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 billion black balls mixed together with one white ball and you're asked to reach in and pull out a ball. And if it's, unless it's white, you'll be executed. Now, whichever ball you pick is equally improbable, right? But nevertheless, it is overwhelmingly more probable that whichever ball you pick, it will be a black ball. It will be life prohibiting. And it's in that sense that the fine-tuning of the universe is incomprehensibly improbable and cries out for an explanation. As for the moral argument, Dr. Stinger agrees there is no uh, evidence for objective morality. If you agree with me, however, that things like racism, the Holocaust, uh, rape, child abuse are really objectively wrong, then you will agree with me that God exists. And I simply rest my case on that deductive argument. As for the arguments concerning the evidence for the resurrection, Dr. Stinger merely said there's no evidence outside the Bible, but what I'm arguing is that when scholars weigh the biblical evidence, there is enough evidence right there. Treating them as ordinary historical documents will get you to, I believe, the resurrection of Jesus as the best explanation. So what intellectual price do you have to pay to adopt Dr. Stinger's view tonight? Well, let me just list what you've got to believe in order to reject these arguments. You've got to believe that a contingently existing universe inexplicably exists for absolutely no reason at all. You've got to believe in a logically incoherent model of the origin of the universe, which no other scientist in the world accepts. You've got to believe, thirdly, that the conditions suitable for life are not narrowly constrained, despite all the evidence to the contrary, or else you've got to believe in an infinite number of randomly ordered parallel universes without any evidence for their existence whatsoever. Fourth, you've got to believe there's no moral difference between a mother who loves and nurtures her children and a sexual predator who preys upon them, that moral praise and blame are unjustifiable and purely subjective. Five, you've got to believe on the basis of your own authority that the majority of the world's historians who have studied the life of Jesus are mistaken about the historicity of the empty tomb, the appearances, the origin of the Christian way, or else embrace some naturalistic explanation which has been virtually universally rejected by contemporary scholars. And finally, number six, you've got to believe that everyone who claims to have a personal experience of God is deluded. You've got to believe all of this just to reject the six arguments I gave, and that still leaves you without any solid case for atheism. And that's why, personally, I believe the case for Christian theism is by far the more compelling. Dr. Stenger, your final statement. Now, Dr. Craig believes in the God of the gaps. That's the God who is used as a substitute explanation for something we don't understand until the time comes along that we do. Dr. Craig cannot see how the universe came about naturally, so it must have come about supernaturally. He cannot, cannot see how the universe became orderly by natural processes, so order must have come about by supernatural processes. He cannot see how objective morality can come from humanity, so it must have come 
from God. He cannot see how Jesus' tomb could have been empty, so he must have risen from the dead. And finally, Dr. Craig cannot see how his inner experience of God could be a simple physical brain process, so it must be a true experience of God. In each of these cases, we can give a plausible, natural explanation that violates no known principles of science and requires no divine action. Dr. Craig does not succeed in proving that these natural explanations are wrong. He's trying, he tries to argue that they're implausible, but in fact everything I've talked about uh, is consistent with all the knowledge we have in science and is uh, in perfect agreement with uh, existing theoretical facts, experimental and theoretical facts. So I don't think Dr. Craig succeeds in proving that God exists. Even if the goal of the debate were not proof, but simply arguing to the best explanation, Dr. Craig fails. Secular humanism or materialism is a better explanation than theism or supernaturalism. It's simpler, more consistent with empirical observations. In fact, Dr. Craig offers no explanations at all. It's not an explanation for the order of the universe to say God did it. How did God do it? Where did God come from? All these issues, all, all you do when you say that God did it is you push the explanation back one level. It doesn't explain a thing. Now, I've argued that a God with the attributes assumed to, by, you know, for him by traditional theism can be proved not to exist if those attributes, of course, exist. Now, you can play with the attributes. You can uh, redefine God so that uh, he doesn't have all these attributes. For example, an all-good uh, God might not be all-perfect or all-powerful, let's say, and then uh, is not responsible for evil, doesn't have, have control over evil. In fact, that was a line that was taken by Rabbi Kushner in his best-selling book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, that God can't help it, that bad things just happen. However, if you assume that God has the power to prevent evil, then the fact that he doesn't and evil still exists is clearly uh, an inconsistency, a logical impossibility. Now, a God who reveals knowledge about the universe that was not previously known could have been objectively verified. Now, a God with such properties clearly does not exist. The God who answers prayers and performs miracles, that can be objectively verified, does not exist. Now, I readily admit that I can't disprove every conceivable God, but there's no basis for believing in a God who doesn't possess objectively verifiable uh, attributes. Now, I'm sure that I've not convinced many of the believers in the audience. I certainly haven't convinced Dr. Craig. Uh, you'll testify, as, as Dr. Craig does, that you could feel the presence of God in your hearts. So I'm sure you do. I understand that conviction. I was raised in a devout Catholic family and heard this conviction expressed by almost everybody around me. But as I grew up, I found that I could not share this faith. Despite the importance of religion to my family and friends, I could not believe in God 
because I saw no evidence that he existed. No one told me about humanism or atheism. I read no humanist or atheist books. I just found that the arguments and evidence that everyone continued to cite to me were unconvincing. Not knowing how all this came about doesn't mean it came from God. It just means we don't know how all this came about. And sincere personal testimonies of deeply held faith were not the sort of objective evidence that we have come to rely on in modern life. Indeed, I saw so many conflicting religious points of view, all based on primitive superstitious ideas, that I knew they couldn't all be right. I decided most likely they were all wrong. Now, most scientists share my view. Are we being too skeptical? Are we being dogmatically unwilling to entertain the possibility of a personal creator God? I don't think so. There are many examples in the history of science that demonstrate its willingness to accept ideas that challenge conventional wisdom. But the data must require it. In the early 20th century, the theories of relativity quantum mechanics revolutionized some of our most basic concepts about the nature of reality. I think most scientists would be thrilled if evidence were found for previously undetected immaterial substances and forces. Think of all the funding opportunities that would open up. I would come out of uh, retirement. But even if that were to happen, I doubt that the world that was then being uncovered would bear any resemblance to the fantasies from the childhood of humanity that constitute traditional religious belief. People like what they see when they look in the mirror, illuminated by the light of faith. It reflects an image of themselves as fallen angels set on this planet with divine purpose to rehabilitate themselves, and so they may rejoin their fellow angels in paradise. Unfortunately, the universe exposed to the light of science, does not reveal a special place for humanity in the cosmos or any any prospect for life after death. I would not be honest if I tried to sugarcoat those facts just because they conflict so dramatically with common yearnings. St. Paul said, When I was a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things for now we see through a glass darkly. Humanity has moved beyond childhood. We no longer need to depend on imaginary friends for company or a mythical sky father to provide for our needs. We can take care of ourselves. We can find ways to live our lives that are consistent with the universe revealed to us by science. Finally, in all good, all powerful, all-knowing God existed, if one existed, he would have the power to comfort a child dying an excruciating death from leukemia. He chooses not to do so. Is there a person in this room who would not ease that child's suffering given the power? I would do it. Jesus Christ could appear before me and tell me not to do it because it has some ultimate purpose, I would still do it. Even if I faced eternal damnation, I would do it. Thank you very much.
Hi, Dr. Craig. My name is Christian. Um, I, I was raised Catholic, and right now I guess you could say I'm in between religions. But my question, my problem always was, my understanding was that Jesus died around between the years 30 A.D. and 33, and then the Gospels were recorded somewhere around 70 A.D. And the problem that I have is so much of my faith was raised to be based on the Gospels, but how can, um, you know, through the use of, I guess you call it oral tradition, how, how can the Gospels be found reliable when, they're, when, they, when some, uh, they contradict themselves and they were written 40 years later? Thank you. Yeah. Well, Christian, um, you, uh, let me recommend a book that you look at. Look at a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, where he deals with some of these questions in detail. This window between A.D. 30, when Jesus died, and, and I believe actually many of the Gospels were written prior to A.D. 66, prior to the, 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 the Jewish war and the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But it, that window of opportunity is extraordinarily narrow when you compare it to the other records for ancient classical Greco-Roman history that we have. For example, the earliest records we have for the life of Alexander the Great come from Plutarch and Arian 300 years after Alexander's death. And even then, classical Greco-Roman historians regard these as largely accurate accounts of the life of Alexander. The fabulous legends don't begin to emerge until centuries later. So when you're talking about documents that are independent of one another and circulated during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, you're talking about extraordinarily valuable historical sources. And that's why more and more New Testament historians are reaching um, the view that, in fact, the Gospels are extraordinarily valuable sources for the historical life of Jesus. So you can, I mean, your faith that you you have resting on the reliability of the Gospels is very secure historically, uh, especially when compared to other events of ancient history. So... Uh, And again, let me just say, the issue is not whether there are discrepancies between the Gospels in minor details or secondary issues. The question is whether the Gospels are fundamentally reliable in things like the crucifixion, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, the origin of the disciples' faith. And there the consensus of historians is that, yeah, these documents really are reliable and trustworthy. Thank you. Dr. Stinger? Well, I'm not a, a biblical scholar, but uh, uh, if you can't believe what you read in the New York Times last week, how can you believe something that was written 2,000 years ago by primitive peoples, by, by our standards, who didn't have, who didn't have uh, our knowledge of, of uh, critical thinking, methodology, and, and, uh, and so on. And, I, and Dr. Craig continually talks about Majorities of scholars. I don't know where he get, takes these polls. Does he take them at Bob Jones University? Uh, as far as I could tell, the majority of scholars view the Gospels as mostly fiction. And that certainly makes sense uh, based on their great antiquity, the fact that there was nothing written down for so many years, the fact that the only uh, written uh, version of the Bible that survived came from about 300 years after Christ. It was like we like us having no written records at all of the history of the United States from the pilgrims, just word of mouth. And somehow uh, we're spo- we would we would uh, try to develop some kind of uh, 
story of, of what really happened, and, and all during American history, it was nothing but nothing but people handing down stories by word of mouth. Okay, thank you. Let's move to the next question. Thirty seconds for Dr. Stern. Uh, my name is Brent Meeker. Uh, I have a question about the uh, premise of the Kalam argument. Uh, Dr. Craig said that everything that begins to exist uh, must be caused to come into existence. Uh, Dr. Stinger gave the example of subatomic particles coming into existence. But for ordinary things, when they come into existence, they're formed from pre-existing things. How can we generalize from the fact that we observe things to come into existence from causes when they're formed from pre-existing things to conclude that things must be caused to come into existence out of nothing? Thank you. Well, you know, I think Dr. Craig misunderstood my position on that. My position wasn't that the Big Bang was like a subatomic particle coming out of nothing. It was a subatomic particle that spontaneously appeared, in this, in this view, uh, out of the pre-existing universe that uh, we have no reason not to assume exists. He's quoted Hawking and so on and other... Uh, people, there was a point at which it seemed like the Big Bang had to be the start of the universe because uh, the, uh, the general theory of relativity implied that there was a, a singularity at the, at the beginning of the universe. In fact, uh, Stephen Hawking jokes about the fact that he uh, became famous for showing that there was a singularity at the beginning of the universe, and then he became famous again in showing that there wasn't. And, and the current, based on current knowledge, current cosmology, there was no singularity because of quantum mechanics, and, and that uh, the, there could have been a, a pre-existing uh, universe. What it looked like, we have no idea, and we probably never will know, and my only point is that we, within the framework of existing physics knowledge, cosmology knowledge, and cosmology, incidentally, in just the last few years has grown enormously in terms of its empirical observational content. And nothing that we know from any of this requires us to say that the universe began with the Big Bang. And uh, I'm not arguing necessarily that there are other universes. I'm not making any such arguments, although that's, that's not ruled out either. We don't have anything to uh, show that they're impossible. I'm just simply pointing out that within a framework of existing knowledge, uh, and, and, and many people are, are, have been making, making calculations and writing articles on this subject, uh, there is this possibility, and thus it rules out the notion that the Big Bang had to be the start of the universe. Okay, thank you. Response, Dr. Craig? Well, first, to the questioner, the point is that if something... Uh, uh, cannot come into being, as the questioner seems to think, without some sort of a material cause. In the case of the universe, it would be doubly impossible for it to come into being without a cause because it would lack both a material cause and an efficient cause. So it would be utterly uncaused if the universe came from nothing. Now, Dr. Stinger's information that he's giving you folks here tonight is simply out of date, what, what he said about... Uh, not beginning, having an absolute beginning. P.C.W. Davies, in his recent book about time, says, Recent ideas in quantum physics have changed our picture of the origin of time somewhat, but the essential conclusion remains the same. Time did not exist 
before the Big Bang. In particular, on quantums, uh, quantum cos or Hawking's quantum cosmology, there is an absolute beginning, even though it's a non-singular beginning, but time is not infinite. So we're, we're, all of the, the evidence supports the prediction of the standard model of the finitude of the past and the absolute beginning of the universe, whether that's in a singularity or in a non-singular state. You, you can't avoid the origin of the universe in, in the way you suggested. Thank you. Let's move to the next question. Dr. Craig for Dr. Craig. Hi, good evening. My name is Sabine. Um, my question is that if God lives in the universe and created the universe, then where was he before? Okay, very good question. I don't think God lives in the universe. That's what I was saying in response to Vic. Christian theologians have never believed that God lives in the universe. Like he's some kind of a, an ether that is diffused throughout the universe so that God is in my glass, you know, and he's in this book and he's in the table. That's never been the, the, the Judeo-Christian view of God. Rather, the idea is that God transcends space and time. He's beyond space and time, just like the Big Bang model suggests, some kind of a cause that's beyond the universe, that's greater than the universe. And so when we say that God is omnipresent or he's everywhere present, what we mean is that he knows what is happening at every point in space. Even if you know there's no one in the room, God knows what's happening there. And that he's causally active at every point in space. He's, he holds everything in being. Our very lives depend moment by moment on his sustaining power. I couldn't take another breath or my heart couldn't beat another beat unless God were to sustain me in existence moment by moment. So the idea here of, of omnipresence is not this idea that God is, you know, like living in the universe. On the contrary, he is beyond the universe and he created the universe and he knows what's happening at every point in the universe and he's causally involved at every point in the universe. That's what we mean by God's being omnipresent. Is that clear? Is, is that, does that make sense? Well, I was asking um, where would he be if he wasn't in the universe before? Well, I don't think he is in the universe. Well, then where is he? The, the, he doesn't have a spatial location. You see, he's not in space. So to say where is he makes no more sense than to say when is he. He transcends space and time. Okay, thank you, up. Dr. Stinger. Well, I don't know how Dr. Craig knows all that. <laughs> I mean, what he has presented with us is, is one of these uh, virtual reality computer game type of pictures. He's, he's, made, a, he's made a nice sounding uh, uh, model of a god outside of space and so on. But he hasn't given any argument why that god has anything to do with the world that we, we see around us. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just pure speculation. Okay, moving to the next question for Dr. Stinger. Hello, Dr. Stinger. Um, the question I have for you is that um, in Isaiah chapter 7, it foretells the virgin birth. Um, and in Isaiah 52, it talks about 12 aspects that will be fulfilled that Jesus talked about. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, it fulfills their criteria. And they wrote it in Greek. And in the Old Testament, they wrote it in Hebrew. So they correlate so well together that how... Um, how was it not divine by the Holy Spirit when the people in Greek could not understand Hebrew and vice versa? Well, let me make it clear that I'm just giving you a plausible explanation and, 
and so that Dr. Craig doesn't jump on me and say, I can't prove it. A plausible explanation is that the, the gospel stories are fiction, and the people who wrote the gospel stories made sure that it agreed with, with uh, the previous uh, uh, stories in the Old Testament. It's still only within the Bible that you have this information. You don't have anything outside of the Bible, uh, any, any kind of evidence whatsoever. You just have people writing down fairy tales. And these fairy tales, are, are maybe, maybe they have a, a nice moral message and so on, but they, they have no, no basis in anything uh, that we can, we can pin down as an objective fact. Dr. Craig? Well, now, Dr. Stenger's answer was a gross uh, misrepresentation of the nature of the Gospels. These are not fictions or fairy tales. They've been archaeologically confirmed. You can read about people like John the Baptist, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, uh, Jesus himself in the works of Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. There is uh, plenty of evidence about Jesus outside the Gospels uh, in rabbinic sources in non-Christian sources, uh, and in Christian literature outside the New Testament. And they all basically agree with the portrait of Jesus that's uh, presented in the Gospels. So that's simply inaccurate, what he's, he's saying. The, the Bible, or rather the New Testament, the Gospels, are on all fours with secular history, and that's why they are so respected by scholars today. And what he said earlier in tonight's Q&A time, about not having any manuscripts of the Bible earlier than 300 years later, again, that's just inaccurate. You can go to the University of Michigan and see the Chester Beatty papyri, which date much earlier than that. So the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is older and more abundant than for any other book in ancient history. So if you trust ancient historians, you should trust the Bible. Okay, moving right along. Question for uh, Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, I agree with you that there is an objective moral truth in the world. And I think there's a great tradition of moral philosophy, both secular and religious, that supports that. But my question is this. You said objective morality is that moral truth that is true regardless of what people think. You also say that you believe that God is all-powerful, omnipotent. If God is omnipotent and he thinks that morality should change, he is capable of changing it. And if God is capable of changing morality, it's not objectively true. It can be changed and it's mutable. How can you resolve that internal conflict? That's a very perceptive and profound question, uh, a, a very good question. And what I would argue is that the best way to understand the way morality is rooted in God is that uh, it's rooted in the very nature of God, that God by nature is loving, just, holy, compassionate, kind, fair, and so forth. And these, this moral nature is expressed toward us in the form of divine commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And because these are expressions of God's very nature, he could not have commanded that we should, uh, that, that hating each other and killing each other would be good. Uh, he couldn't have reversed the, the moral code in the way he suggested. So that omnipotence doesn't mean the ability to act contrary to God's own nature. 
Uh, omnipotence doesn't mean the ability to do logical contradictions, and that would be contradictory to God's own nature. So morality is rooted in the very nature of God, which is expressed in these commandments that become our moral duties. You want to follow up? Go ahead. It sounds like the way you're defining omnipotence isn't really omnipotence. He doesn't have the power to do anything. He has the power right. to do certain things. Right, and that, that is correct. Christian theologians, again, have never defined omnipotence, apart from René Descartes. The, the famous philosopher, have never defined omnipotence to just mean that God can do anything. For example, God cannot sin. Uh, God cannot uh, uh, act contrary to his own nature. So omnipotence means that God can do anything that it's logically possible to do. But you see, it's logically impossible for God to act contrary to his own nature. So that doesn't limit omnipotence. And, and I mean, that's just... That is just the traditional concept of omnipotence. It's not some sort of retreat that's forced by arguments. Christian theologians have never thought that God could act contrary to his own nature. That would be absurd. So I don't think there is a problem here with God sort of reversing morality or, or making morality arbitrary. On the contrary, I would say that God's moral law and commandments are necessary. They are necessarily true because they flow necessarily out of the very nature of God. Okay, thank you. Dr. Stinger? Well, once again, Dr. Craig is talking about a, a God as, as if he has all this information. I guess you get it from talking from, to God, I suppose. But there's, that's, again, a case of, of being able to, as theologians have done over the centuries, uh, build up a kind of picture, a model of God, uh, that uh, is is based on uh, nothing nothing but their own uh, imagination that doesn't have to have anything to do with the real world. Okay, question for Dr. Stinger. Uh, hi, Dr. Stinger. Uh, welcome, first of all. My name is Raghi. I'm an undergrad at the engineering school. And I had a question is, do you believe in the existence of the concept of the soul? And if you do, can you tell us how you view it or see it? And if you don't, can you explain to us um, the difference between an alive Mr. Joe and that Mr. Joe being dead? And what was the last part? And if you do not believe in the existence of the concept of the soul, uh, how do you explain to us the difference between an uh, alive Mr. Joe and that Mr. Joe being dead? Well, no, I don't, I don't uh, see any, any evidence for anything except a material body. And in fact, the, I really wonder what it is that's supposed to live forever when, when all that we are, all, all our personality, all our memories are in our brains. So I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I think that neuroscience uh, is, is strongly urging us in that direction. Now, of course, I, again, we don't have uh, uh, proof here, but we have a simpler Argument: We can draw a picture of of human behavior, of, of uh, human memory, human personality. We see the way it, it's affected by drugs, by uh, uh, by brain uh, disease, and, and so on. We, we see memory go away because of disease, and so the evidence is, I think, piling up pretty substantially that that what we are is, is, is that's in our brain is, is a purely material being 
And unfortunately, when that brain dies, uh, so do we. Dr. Craig? Well, I think it was evident in his first speech that Dr. Stenger thinks that persons are just material entities. In other words, he's a materialist. He doesn't believe in the soul. And that has profound implications for the meaning and significance of human personhood and our lives. We are essentially, on his view, just electrochemical machines. And everything you do is determined by your genetic makeup and the external stimuli that you receive, which means there is no free will. It means that love is just an electrochemical process in the brain, in your cranium. Uh, it's no wonder that he doesn't think that there's any objective morality, because on this view, we're just animals. We're just relatively advanced primates. So this materialistic view of human being, I think, has very, very serious consequences that the listener, or rather the, the, uh, uh, the student points out. And, um, and I would say that uh, the, the fact that we do sense that we are free agents who do things that are meaningful, that we experience beauty and love and value, suggests that, in fact, persons aren't just material electrochemical machines. We are uh, immaterial souls or persons conjoined to a physical body. Okay, question for Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, Dr. Stinger mentioned uh, Revelation in his opening statement. Yes. <clears throat> he mentioned that if you could prove a revelation, and he mentioned the man on the moon, if the Bible had proven that, um, he'd believe. Can you give a revelation or a prophetic statement written in the scriptures proven or true today? Well, yes. Uh, the The... The Bible claims to give an account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, of his birth, his ministry, his miracles, um, his crucifixion, uh, burial, and resurrection. And I think that, si uh, that, that history has confirmed the accuracy of these accounts. So, as Christians, we believe that the Gospels are revelations from God, that this is a revelation. And this isn't some kind of a fairy tale. It's not some kind of a myth like Krishna or Hercules. This is talking about real historical people that actually lived, real events that are verified in secular history, real places and things that happened that you can discover archaeologically. So that as a Christian, I feel very comfortable with uh, historical evidences and inquiries into the past and the authentication of this revelation that is given in the New Testament. Now, let me use this as an opportunity to reply to Dr. Stenger when he says, well, these are just virtual made-up games. They're just the result of your imagination. Not at all. This is the, the result of revelation from God, the revelation that we have of God in the Bible, his self-disclosure to us. The Bible is God's love letter to us to tell us what he is like and how we can come to know him. And then what Christian theologians do is they reflect philosophically upon God's revelation to understand what God is like. What does it mean to say God is almighty? What does it mean to say he's omnipresent? What does it mean to say he's all-knowing? And they craft a model of God or, 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 or a, a, a picture of God. And then the question is, is this model or picture verified by the evidence? And when you look out at the universe, what you find over and over again is, yes, it is the origin of the universe out of nothing in the finite past, the fine-tuning of the universe, the existence of a realm of objective moral values, the historicity of the New Testament. Over and over again, you see that this model or picture of God 
bears historical and scientific and philosophical verification. And that's why you ought to believe in it. Dr. Sure. Well, since he's, he's covered several things here, let me, let me try to, to do the same. I mean, uh, first of all, again, with respect to the historicity of the, of the Bible, and uh, you mentioned Josephus. Josephus uh, is now well, well established to be uh, a Christian. His discussion of Jesus is well established to be a, a, uh, an, a later Christian interpolation. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't exist. I'm not saying that the stories aren't based on a certain element of, of, of truth, but we have no, uh, we have no basis. I don't know what the archaeological evidence you're talking about, except perhaps this, uh, this empty tomb uh, that uh, is in Jerusalem that some people have thought held uh, the, uh, the source of, of uh, the story of the empty tomb. And, uh, you know, with, with respect, again, to this whole question of origins, uh, all I can say is that modern cosmology, modern physics, is, uh, does not require any kind of supernatural input into origins. And also, let me say that with respect to the materialist viewpoint, I think, I think uh, love and, and uh, these other wonderful uh, aspects of, of human life are perfectly consistent with us being purely material. And if that's the way it is, if that's, that's what we are, then that's what we are. We can't wish it otherwise. Okay, now uh, let me say that the 30 minutes are up for the questions, um, but I noticed that there's still people in line and there's still a lot of people sitting here. Uh, <laughs> would you be willing to go on for another 15 minutes? Sure. Is that, is that, is that, is that okay? And if you if you'd like to leave, that's fine. Just do it do it quietly. But we'll we'll continue for another 15 minutes, okay? And uh, so I don't know if we'll get to all of you that are in line, but we'll go for 15 minutes. Ready? Go for it. Hi, Dr. Sanger and uh, Dr. Craig. Thank you for being here, Dr. Sanger. Sanger, throughout the debate, um, you started off pretty strong in your area of certainty, and then you used the word plausibility. Uh, then at the conclusion of your uh, talk, you talked about your childhood. And you said, "I saw no evidence that he existed." My question for you is, uh, that strikes me as a statement of requiring exhaustive knowledge. Um, if, if, the, if, if the evidence for God's existence was in a little box in Tibet, um, have you been to Tibet? Uh, and how can you conclude something that re would require exhaustive knowledge? It doesn't require exhaustive knowledge. It just requires one piece of knowledge, and then I would, then I would see it. Obviously, you can't rule out the existence. I mean, I think it was... Bertrand Russell, who used the example of a teapot in orbit around the sun. Uh, there, there are an infinite number of, of uh, entities that you can imagine that you can't disprove existed. But in the case of, of God, I was trying to point out that the traditional God, not every conceivable God, not the deist God or the pantheist God or the Hindu gods, uh, the God uh, that uh, is supposed to be the traditional God of the monotheistic religions, and particularly Christianity, has certain attributes. And it was those attributes that I was, I was addressing. And I think that one of those attributes is, is the attribute of being objectively observable. That's, that's my, as a scientist, that's to me the most uh, important. Some of these arguments, philosophical and theological arguments, are kind of like, like uh, the angels dancing on the head of a pin. And, uh, but it's the, uh, it's the, uh, the absence of, of evidence is sufficient reason not to 
believe in any entity. Dr. Kirk? I was speaking about this time last year in Sydney, Australia, and at the Technical University in Sydney, I met a fellow who is a forensic scientist. And he said to me, it's almost a maxim or an axiom among forensic scientists that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Now, now think of that. Uh, so, suppose we have no good evidence that Saddam Hussein is alive. Does it therefore follow that we have good evidence that he is not alive? Well, no, clearly not at all. The absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence, and it's exactly the same with God. Even if all of my arguments failed to prove that God exists, it still wouldn't follow that God does not exist from the absence of evidence. So don't be, uh, don't be led astray by this idea that the absence of evidence means that something doesn't exist. That's, that's simply a false principle. And I was also surprised when Dr. Stenger said in his closing statement that as a young man, he said, I, I saw that they all, all the world's religions couldn't be right, so I concluded that they were all wrong. Well, again, that doesn't follow at all. What would follow from them not all being right is that at most one could be right. But okay. it doesn't mean they're all wrong. Okay, let's move to the next question for Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, um, I'd like to bring back a question that Dr. Stenger proposed that I feel you skirted in all an right. invalid way, mainly because I really enjoyed your talk and want to know your answer. Okay. The thing about the morality of some events in the Old yes. Testament, Dr. Stenger was not... Um, Saying, you got around it by saying he doesn't have a standard of morality, but he was more going for a proof by contradiction, assuming your stance and showing that with acceptance of God and the Bible, it leads to a contradiction. Yeah. So I'd like to know how you... Right. Actually, that. I wished I'd had more time to respond to that in our dialogue time, so I'm glad you brought it back up again. Um, what I would say is this, is again, that objection at the most, let's just assume it's successful. Let's assume that's a good objection. What does it prove? Does that prove that God does not exist? Well, clearly not. It, it wouldn't. All that would prove is that the Bible, say, is not infallible, that the Bible isn't inerrant, that the Bible got some things wrong about God. Um, and that would not in any way disprove God's existence, nor would it undercut my argument that the existence of a realm of objective moral values proves that there has to be God as a transcendent anchor point. I mean, quite honestly, without God, it does seem to me we're just lost in sociocultural relativism. How can one culture and society say to another culture and society that its values are wrong in the absence of a transcendent anchor point? So it does seem to me that this is a good argument for saying that God exists. Now, even if the argument were successful, well, there's certain things in the Old Testament that are immoral, that would just prove that the Old Testament you know, was not the inerrant word of God. It wouldn't prove that my argument is fallacious or that God doesn't exist. Now, in fact, when you look at these cases more closely, I think what you discover is that Dr. Stenger is, is incorrect. The, the Scriptures does not endorse things like rape uh, and uh, murder and, and, and so forth. It records that these things happened in the Old Testament, and it records that often they were done by people that were... Uh, Jews in the Old Testament. But I, I don't think that the Bible endorses these at all. So I, these would have to be just looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think what you'll find is that although the Bible records 
the activities of certain Old Testament figures, warts and all, it, it doesn't endorse the immoralities that they sometimes perpetrate. Okay, Dr. Stanger. Let's see. Let's consider Isaiah 45.7. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So uh, God himself admits he's the source of evil in the, in the Old Testament. But again, I agree, the Old Testament is a fiction too, so I don't want to, to make too much, uh, uh, too much about that. Uh, the, the point still remains that there has to be some source of, of this morality that's supposed to come from, from God. And if it's not, it's pretty clearly not the Bible, because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot of things that we consider moral. Even the Ten Commandments, the only commandments that are even law, are thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal, and those were uh, command, those, those, those were rules that civilizations prior to the Bible uh, uh, held to already. So, I don't, I don't see where our knowledge of, of what is good or bad comes from. Uh, Dr. Craig says it comes from within us. Well, that, that's very possible. That could have arisen by perfectly natural causes. Okay, move very long. Uh, the next question is to Dr. Stanger. Yes, Dr. Stanger. Um, I have a question. Do you believe that um, your um, belief that there's no creator um, takes faith to believe that? And also, um, you did talk about um, needing that the possibility that you could have faith in God if you were presented um, the right kind of evidence, and as well as these other scientists. Do you really... Um, feel that there is evidence that you could accept? Well, this is something about the word faith. I mean, Archie Bunker said, faith is when you believe something no one in his right mind would believe. Uh, so, I'm talking about belief. I, if I had evidence, uh, and, and all the scientists that I, I, I showed pictures of, if they had the evidence, they would believe. I mean, we're, we're ready to believe if, if the evidence... The evidence is there, and uh, with this, this, this refers back to a, an earlier comment when I said that absence of evidence is evidence of absence. What I really mean by that, I mean, it, Dr. Craig mentions Saddam Hussein. I mean, we have a lot of evidence that Saddam Hussein existed at one time or other, and he may be dead now, and so we don't know. But that's not the same thing as a total, uh, totally invisible entity that we have no information about whatsoever. Uh, that we just create out of whole cloth, give them all kinds of attributes, make it logically consistent so that it sounds good, and uh, appeal to uh, people's uh, uh, emotions and inner needs and desires. Uh, and uh, it, it takes more than that. It, you, it's just like the teacup in orbit around uh, the sun. You have to have some basis for believing in, in such a, an ephemeral entity. Dr. Craig? Well, you'll recall 
that I closed my final statement in the debate by listing six things that you've got to believe to follow Dr. Stenger and his atheism. And these are extraordinary commitments that I think require enormous faith to believe, things that go far beyond the reach of, of science, things that I think are historically and philosophically erroneous, in fact. So I think he exercises enormous faith in his atheism. Um, and I want to take the opportunity here to, to respond to what he said about uh, Isaiah 45, 7. Again, that was a beautiful illustration of exactly what I meant, of misconstruing things out of context. He was quoting from the King James Version of the Bible, where it says, God says, I create evil. No modern translation translates that word that way. What God is saying there is, I bring calamity as well as prosperity, good times as well as bad times. But it's not talking about evil in the moral sense. That was just a misunderstanding of Dr. Stenger of this passage. And that's illustrative of the point I was making to the other questioner, that when you look at these on a case-by-case -case basis, I don't think they at all bear out the point that Dr. Stenger was making. Doc, question for Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, I'm Thomas Payne. Thank you for taking my question. Um, we hear theists and non-theists postulate the non-existence of God, and, and those people have struggles with the existence of God based on pain and suffering. And that's often raised as an issue of conflict for our, we, we see pain and suffering and wonder why sure. we, why, with the presence of God, why do we have that? And I believe that largely that comes from, at least the theist perspective, uh, a misunderstanding of where pain and suffering comes from. Would you explain to us the effects of sin and what it had on God's creation? I think that one reason, Tom, that the problem of pain and suffering seems so difficult for most of us is that we just sort of naturally assume that if God exists, then His purpose for us is to create a comfortable environment for His human pets in which they can flourish and be happy. But you see, on the Christian view of life, this isn't the purpose of life. The purpose of life is not just human happiness in this life, and we are not God's pets. Rather, we are free moral agents created in the image of God whom God invites into an eternal love relationship with Himself. He's created us to know Him. But human beings, as, as Tom indicated, have spurned that inv invitation. They've rejected God. They've turned their back on Him and sought to find other uh, uh, ways to fulfill themselves. Drugs, sex, materialism, uh, consumerism, and, and so forth. And this has led to enormous pain and suffering in the world. And God lets human depravity run its course. The vast majority of the evils that occur in the world today are evils that result from man's own inhumanity to man. But what the Christian believes is that God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing pain and suffering in the world. In fact, God's project is the project of drawing people, drawing men and women back into this relationship with himself. And it may well be the case that only in a world that is suffused with pain that the optimum number of people would come to freely embrace God and come to know him in his salvation. And what the atheist would have to show is that there's another possible world that God could have created which has less pain and suffering in which a greater number or the same number of people freely come to know God and His salvation as they do in this world. And that, of course, is something that the atheist couldn't possibly prove. It's, it's pure speculation. 
Dr. Stinger. Well, the picture seems to be the, that God defines what is good and bad. And so, if God were to uh, appear before me right now and say, go torture a baby, then I would have to go torture a baby because God said it was good to torture a baby. Or if I were Adolf Hitler and I, I uh, talked to God and God said, go kill all the Jews, then uh, that would be good to kill all the Jews. Well, I'm a humanist and I go by humanist morality, the morality that we humans have developed over the years and not relied on uh, uh, some mystical source. And I'll tell you, to a humanist, uh, torturing a baby is bad. And uh, the Holocaust was bad. It was evil. And remember, it's, it's gratuitous suffering that we're talking about here. Certainly, as I pointed out, pain has a, has a, has a role to play. But the amount of unnecessary suffering that's not man-induced, you can't blame it on free will because I just disagree totally with Dr. Craig that the majority, that the great majority of, of, of suffering is human-induced. It's, it's natural. It's disasters and diseases and so on that humans have nothing to do with. Okay, thank you. Our 15 minutes are up. Could we give our debaters a round of applause?